Welcome to Shop Talk Live, Fine Woodworking Magazine's bi-weekly podcast. I'm your host and Fine Woodworking Editor, Tom McKenna. And with me this episode are Executive Art Director, Mike Pekovich. Hey, guys. Special Projects Editor, Matt Kenny. Hello. And our web producer, Ben Strano. Hi, everybody. <laughs> and as always, <laughs> uh, helping behind the scenes is Jeff Rose. Uh, before we get started with the questions... I have to take care of some business. This podcast is sponsored by Typon's new quick and thick multi-surface glue, the thickest, fastest drying water-based wood glue available. In fact, it's two times faster and three times thicker than traditional PVA wood glues. Typon quick and thick is ideal for interior woodworking as it provides a strong initial tack, allows for realignment of working pieces, and dries clear. Visit typebond.com slash quick and thick to learn more. Let's uh, let's get to the, the heart of the matter. I know. <clears throat> um, you got some good questions this week? Actually, uh, yeah, let's let's hit up a let's start with some questions. Ben had had uh, this ingenious idea of wow. hiding the questions he from us. An, he had an idea. <laughs> so <laughs> we're gonna roll this bad boy out. Um, comments welcome at the end. Uh, so we have we have an assortment of Matt's uh, 52 boxes sitting in front of us, and each one has some sort of question, woodworking-related, hopefully. In it. Um, so I'll, uh, I'll have Matt, since they're his boxes, I'll let him grab one and uh, I'll let him read it, too. We'll just start with bubbles over here. Be gentle. All right. This is a question. This is taking too long. It is. <laughs> All right. Julian. Oh my gosh. It's it's not it's like four pages long. It says Dear Most Esteemed Experts. This is a really long question. Did you not edit this down at I, all? I tried to edit it. Oh my gosh. Jeez. All right. Hope, hope you have a good background song for this one. All right, so here it goes, everybody. I've been challenged flattening small cross section pieces on my joiner. Mm -hmm. I yeah, I don't know what that means. I spent the greater part of a day fine tuning my joiner to no avail. I purchased a brand 8-inch joiner because of it it has the longest beds available and a parallelogram lift linkage with individual offset bushings for adjustment, parallelogram beds. I offfitted the new machine with a bird segmented gutter head. Nice. I have the tools uh, and machinist experience to align machinery. It appears all I have tried, everything I've tried leaves me with less than my desired straight wood. The beds are coplanar within a thousandth of an inch in a slight five- I don't even know what goes smaller than thousands. What's the next thing after thousands? Ten thousands. Five ten thousandths of an inch in each midsection at a flat. I adjusted the outfit table tangent to the cutter circle, but found a tall, th thick test piece failed to clean up at the tailing edge. Yeah. Easy. Done. Yeah. We already know the answer, don't we? Yeah. Do you want me to keep reading? No. Outfit no, table is too high. Go ahead, man. Finish the question. Well, the... Oddly, <laughs> Sorry, I, I, I'm reading this whole question, and it's from our old friend, Fathful Listener, who thinks I talk too much. <laughs> uh, so he adjusted the outfit table tangent to the cutter circle, but found a tall, thick test piece failed to... Okay, when Ooh, I adjusted I the outfit table... I got a better answer. Okay, keep going. When I adjusted the outfit bed a thousandths to two thousandths below the cutter circle, as suggested by Mike... Yes. Boom. See, he already knew what you were going to say. Uh, I get a slight concave edge as observed by placing two jointed edges of wide, stiff boards together. Think panel glue. 
In the case of panels, this would not be a problem. <laughs> However, my problem is with small cross sections. I don't know what that means. Short pieces. Yeah, I guess so. Lately are something that's not very wide, like huh. an inch wide. So maybe edge joints it and it could just be wood movement taking it out. All right. Lately, my fine woodworking projects have been hijacked by picture framing, which exacerbates this dilemma. Exactly there what I was is. talking about. So, hmm. all right. Chapter four. No matter what I try, I am unable to successfully flatten nominal one and one quarter by three quarter inch and uh, in smaller pieces. Well, yeah, there you go. I mean, the pieces are shorter there. than the in-feed and out-feed tables. I am using push pads to immediately apply pressure. Ooh, yeah, yeah, no, that's yep, a, yep. there you go. And pieces Wrong. as it reaches the out-feed table. Yeah. Pushing forward at the tail end until I can maneuver both push pads to the out-feed side. I tried applying all the pressure on the in-feed table with predictable tapered results. Yeah, not good. I've tried light <laughs> uh, 15,000 and thick cuts and all have the same results, a concave surface. Please offer some guidance and suggestions so I can finish uh, this framing project and uh, get on with some real work. Wait be. a minute. And it goes on. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you, you, okay. lost me. you lost me at esteemed. Uh, that's where it is. And the, the, the person is Dean. Dean. I wonder if it's our buddy, Dean. Um, Dean, a lot of things going on here. Let's start with the last <laughs> yes, <there> first. <laughs> if, you have, if you have relatively thin stock with a bow and it's relatively long and you're using a push pad to push down on the stock as you're pushing it forward, you're sort of flattening things out. So the yes. minute it gets past you know, onto the outfeed table and you lift up that push stick, it's just going to go back to its shape. So that's kind of easy. Um, yeah, because he's pushing it flat, yeah. and he's <clears throat> taking the bow out of it as it goes across. But as soon as he then releases the pressure back. off, yeah. it goes back to bowed. Yeah. yeah. So I like some sort of like a, a hooky type stick pushing it forward, like a table saw push stick, as opposed to a pad. The push stick, you know, hooks on the end, and you're pushing it mm -hmm. forward with really light downward pressure. And if it's really thin and long, and you know, it's like. Is you know sometimes you just have to deal with just a little bit of bow. Mm -hmm. um, so but. here's here's something I do in a case like this where you have something that is got a bow in it, and um, it's either hard to uh, not put pre downward pressure on it and right. take the bow out, or it's too long. Yeah, is uh, it is recommended practice to always have two points of contact down, but. In a case like this, I will turn it over and go with the center of it, and yeah, that's really smart. Joint that, start to joint that flat. So you can put your push pad right in the center. Yes. So hopefully you're not obviously you know taking off one end and leaving the other one high. Yeah. that's really good advice. And then when you get it a reasonable amount of it straight, it's just like it's really super easy. Yeah, here's another thing, sort of with the the bow side down. It's like if you're resawing stock, say you take an eight-quarter piece and you rip it or resaw it in half, you typically the pieces bow towards each other, but you have a lot of sort of case-hardened wood to the outside of the stock. So if you keep removing the bow on the inside, it keeps wanting to bow more. Yes. Where if you remove the outside or the convex surface first, you're actually sometimes you're actually straightening out the stock on the opposite side as you're sort of getting it flat on that right. side. So, it's equalizing the tension. Or, but but yeah. here's the thing. With the <clears throat> segmented cutter head, um, in a helical fashion, those little teethy guys, they're not flat. They're sort of curvy-shaped. They're arced on top. Yeah. Like so cambered. if you're setting your outfeed table to the top of the arc, well, on the sides of the arc where it's lower, 
they're actually sitting. How's that going to work? I wonder if that works. I wonder if it's because of segmented cutter head and you have to lower it. My math may be wrong, but anyway, if it doesn't cut on the back end, lower it, which he did, and it sounded like. I couldn't tell if he got some snipe on the back end. That's because what it sounded it was like too to low. me. No, it sounded like he was getting the effect of having the, the alpha concave. table too high, and it wasn't. Okay. I, I don't know. Yeah, I ran out of gas here. Yeah, like so, I said, he lost me at esteemed. Ben, we'll have to talk about the notion of editing <laughs> after the podcast. <laughs> because holy cow, that was a long question. Yeah. Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, no, that's right. Okay, so it won't cut if your if your Alfie table is higher than your knives, right? Right. So if you set it to the highest point, a little curvy tooth, it's actually higher than the ends. So it could be technically this flush, but it's actually high. Mm-hmm. And there you go. I'm glad. Right. I'm glad that worked out well. That would have been my smooth move if I was wrong on that one. I'm kind of uh, I'm kind of hesitant to move on to this next new idea because the so far <laughs> the previous one has been uh, not so smashing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but what's the next new idea? Is uh, well, it's yours, man. Oh, we're gonna do that now. Yeah. All right. So <laughs> hang on to your hats. Yeah, I just wanted to share with everybody a, new, a statistic. Uh, I'm going to start sharing statistics with everybody because we know how exciting they are. So this is my stat of the podcast. And did you guys know that 87% of all woodworkers have at least three tape measures that no longer work correctly? I can't dispute that, but I have no idea how you would have even figured that out. I'm just saying. <laughs> now, now, does this mean that there's going to be more of these to come in the future? <clears throat> I have an entire notebook of these. <laughs> okay. well, well, then I, I look forward to we'll all have, of them thoroughly researched. We'll have to have Ben rip them out and put them in your boxes. Yeah, yeah. They're all. My, I have a research assistant named Captain Morgan who does all this for me. All right. Wow, this is a slow start. <laughs> what do we say this about afternoon podcasts? Yeah, not a good idea. To ourselves and poor listeners. So let's move uh, to the next question. Hopefully, uh, it'll be less than four chapters like uh, the previous one. Oh, let me I'll, open a box. Yeah, I'll let right. Mike uh, run with this one. I don't touch my boxes. This is a little ebony box with green trim. It's very nice, and it's got some nice fabric liner in the bottom. Jeez. Oh, not not, not about the box. <laughs> Okay, this is from Cameron. This question is from Matt. I should let you read this. I watched your segment on Highland Woodworking about your mitering jig for small boxes. I recently tried to make a similar jig, but it was for a piece that was six inches wide because the results I was getting on the table saw weren't good. Sure. I was using a Stanley nine and a half block plane, having a really hard time, blah, blah, blah. Mentally, I'm new to blade was sharpened. <laughs> Um, read the question, Okay, Mike. basically, he wasn't getting, getting good results with his block plane. Was my blade not sharp enough, or is there something else I need to know? Thanks. Well, I think the problem is is that uh, if you made the jig exactly the way that I made it, as, as shown on the Highland Hardware, uh, Highland Woodworker uh, TV sh- uh, web show, which has a base and then just has two rails, but there's nothing connecting the top. You know, right. So you have this uh, short, you have a hand plane, a block plane that's shorter than your work pieces wide. Okay. And uh, it only is really going to be supported by the base while you're trying to go all the way across. Go all the way across. And I suspect that 
what you ended up doing was uh, not keeping it tight down onto the 45 degree angle that's cut into the base piece. And so it didn't cut uh, accurately. Okay. If I were needed to do uh, a really wide piece like that, I would move, you would want to move to a longer plane. That's one option. So like a four Mm -hmm. or a five or something designed, you know, something like a, uh, well, an iron miter plane, something like that, uh, which would work because then you'd have the more of the plane would be in contact and you'd, it'd be easier to keep it at the right angle, Okay, you know, because with a black plane, there's, there's going to be at some point while he's planing that miter where the black plane's not touching either rail. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it would be easy to take that thing out of 45 degree. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, or what I would do is make a jig that the same way, but also has a rail across the width of it at the top. Okay, right. And it's also at forty-five. And then you could then you could skew the block plane so that the tail of the block plane—that's not what you call it. No, I can't. The word heel. Just, no, you have the toe and the whatever the back of it the heel sounds right to me is on the top rail and the toe is on the bottom rail so you're skewing it down a little bit you're skewing it down and the blade is on the workpiece and that would keep keep the block plane at 45 degrees yeah and And, the workpiece down against the bed of the jig and the workpiece down against the bed of the jig so that's that's if you have a something wider than your uh, blade is long or you could have just said no you're not sharp enough yeah i feel the need to interject because what what Mike lost over was that <laughs> <laughs> that was on the paper was that he was sharpened to twelve hundred grit, and he was at, he was having a hard time with the end grain. Oh, jeez, Mike. <laughs> well, so he I, has. I said all of that. No, he has the problem that I just described, which I think is likely, but also yeah. yes, twelve hundred grit that is not sharp enough for end grain. Okay. Yeah, that's not high enough. It's really not high enough for anything, but. You need to get like a polishing stone because really, yeah. I mean, I sharpen twelve hundred yeah. is my lowest stone. Then I go to six hundred and then thirteen thousand. Yes, yeah. So, yeah, there you go. All right, this is working out really well. <laughs> it's, like a, it's like a bulldozer on the highway. Um, let's see if we can uh, ramp up the energy a bit with uh, our all-time favorite technique of all time. For this week, and um, let's start off with Mike. All right. Uh, Favorite technique of all time of this week is spacer block, which I probably mentioned in the past. These are wonderful things, uh, capable of doing many operations with great accuracy. In this instance, I'm actually combining two spacer blocks of different widths to tackle a really tough problem, which is cutting a double mortise and tenon joint where um, you have two mortises, you got to cut two tenons exactly the same thickness as the width of the mortise with the exact same spacing. Really, really hard to do. I normally break this up into like a billion steps and combine a dado blade and a bandsaw and test pieces and this and that. Um, I went a little bit different route. I pulled out my, um, my tenoning jig for my table saw. And I wanted to cut a 5 16 wide tenon. So instead of making a cut, flipping it, making another cut, which wasn't going to work because I need two tenons, I whipped up a spacer block that I could make one cut, put the spacer block between the jig and the workpiece to make another cut, and it gives me the tenon exactly the right thickness that I want. 
took um, one or two tries to to dial that in. But once I had that, now I'm cutting my tenons exactly where I want to cut them. So then I got a second spacer block, which was basically the desired width between the tenons plus the thickness of the tenon or width of the mortise, which in this case was 5 sixteenths. So I went to my mortiser. I did one row of mortises. I put the spacer block in to space my mortises. So then I went back to the table saw. I used my tenon spacer to cut one tenon. Then I added the gap spacer to cut the first cheek of the second tenon. And then the gap spacer plus my tenon spacer to get the, to cut the final cheek. Mm-hmm. Boom. Done. Perfect. Cheeky. It amazes me how many uses you can find for blue tape. I didn't use any tape this time. Oh. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> uh, anyways. Now, that's cool. That's a cool technique. I've seen that before. Is it okay if I say that? I've seen that technique before. Uh, yeah. I mean, it shows up in variations. Tim Russo did it in conjunction with a router. Mm-hmm. A router? And a, a bandsaw. And a bandsaw. This yeah. is much, much different. This is in conjunction <laughs> with a mortiser <laughs> and a tenon jig on oh, table saw. Oh, yeah, now I see. Yeah. Very different. Very different. Yes. It's very smart, though. So it worked, worked really, really well. I was very proud of myself Yeah. for a while, but then I will continue the story later on. And there's no fitting of the tenon at all. It just pops right in there? Yeah. Will that be yeah. part of a, an article? Uh, yeah, it was. Tim Rousseau wrote it about four years ago. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, it will show up again in this new form, slightly modified form. <laughs> modified original. Yes. Well, since we're still rolling really well, uh, uh, I'll throw this toward Matt. Okay. All right. So my favorite technique of all time this week, I believe I've probably mentioned it before, but I just have reused it uh, this week or in this past week, and it's something I really like. So um, – I my favorite wood is cherry, and my favorite cut of cherry is riffsawn. So, yes. it's but it's very hard to find riffsawn cherry much wider than say four or five inches. You know because they just don't make riffsawn cherry boards. Right. You go to the, you know there's no stack of that at the lumber yard. Or you find some yeah. you pay through the nose for a thirteen inch wide cherry board and rip the riffsawn yeah. edges yes. off and throw the center away. Right. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's no good. So many years ago, I started when I was making boxes like this little guy here, which you can see the side is only about an inch and a quarter. Well, anything up to about two inches, I realized that I could get riffs on stock by ripping off the edge. And the edge of the board, like of an eight-quarter board, becomes the face of the side. So that's how I could get riffs on stock. And then when I was making my 52 boxes, there was one where it was like nine inches wide or deep, and I wanted all that to be riffs on, and it struck me that, okay, I can rip slices off the edge of, uh, I had some 12-quarter cherry, and then lay those down and glue them up, and I'd get a nine-inch wide riffs on board. And because the grain is tight and straight, you don't really see the glue lines. So this is, uh, that's that's my technique, is to, if you want riffs on stock, or quarter sawn stock, you know, find a board, you know, a thick board, eight quarter, 12 quarter, and uh, rip boards off the edge and work your way across the width of it. And you end up with, uh, and re-glue them in the panels and you end up with nice wide riffs on stock. Very cool. 
Yeah. And this works because cool. you just bought a plain sawn eight quarter cherry board. Plain sawn, yeah, sorry. Which means the, the rings are sort of diving at a 45 degrees at the yeah. edges of the board. So as you cut into the center, you're probably getting more quarter sawn, but that's probably not necessarily a bad thing. It does transition yeah. the quarter sawn. I, I personally do not like quarter sawn cherry, but I deal with it here. Um, you know, quarter sawn cherry, just like anything, well, I, I don't think anything quarter sawn, but when you quarter sawn white oak, you have that really. The Rayflex. Long Rayflex, right? right? When you quarter saw uh, maple or cherry, the Rayflex is more it – it's not like that. It's like a different it, – it, it's kind of almost like a shimmery Yeah, almost like a metallic or something. Yeah. yeah. And it's also kind of a pain in the butt, you know, because – and I don't really like that. I like quarter sawn – I mean riff sawn because you don't get that Rayflex. Right. And also then – the edge of the board will also be riff sawn, but if it's quarter sawn, then the edge of the board is flat sawn. Mm -hmm. So I don't like that look. Yeah. You know, I want it all straight grain. So riff sawn is what I prefer. But you're right; you have to be careful because the further you can go into the board as you're doing this, the more, closer it gets to being quarter sawn. Yes. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Oh, it's my turn. Um, <laughs> um, well, my favorite all all time favorite technique of all time is related to sharpening. Um, I did a kind of a smooth move. I dropped a, a plane blade when I was getting ready to hone it, and I I chipped a little bit, and so it was time to go back to the grinder. And I and I had been wanting to um, ditch the grinder and start using this granite plate that I had bought many years ago, but buried in my shop. And when I recently cleaned out, I found it, and I thought, wow, this is I want to start using this. So. Um, instead of going back to the grinder, I just did the primary bevel using sandpaper on the granite. How, and how coarse did you go? I started with 120. Okay. It was pretty pretty coarse, yep. but you know, I figured I wanted to get it done fast. So yep. I went from 120 to 150, and I did a, one more uh, 220 coat on the, the granite. I probably, was, I probably didn't need to go that far. Okay. But um, so I went and... Did it and it was really cool because what what it helped me. What I I always struggle with grinding because I don't do it very often. It's hard for me to keep that square edge and it's to an avoid art. burning. Yeah, it's it's right. just even with the a replacement softer wheel, um, I was still having trouble. So with the granite on, I mean the sandpaper on granite, is allows me to put it into my grinding into my honing jig. Um, I have a Lee Valley a Veritas honing jig, honing guide, and I can get that primary bevel done pretty quickly and squarely and then just readjust for the secondary bevel and go right to my stone. So right. um, it was fast and precise, a lot faster than I thought it would be. I, I, I use that method too quite a bit. And uh, I use, um, I think I have a, a, a 150, 220, and 400 okay. are the grits that I use. And I found that the 400 is fine enough that when I transition to the 1200 grit water stone, you're not at the 1200 grit forever mm -hmm. trying to get rid of those. Uh, you mean for yeah. your secondary, but you don't continue polishing the primary bevel with your water stones, do you? Um, sometimes, well, I, I've done it both ways in the past. In the past, I would uh, continue on with the 1200 uh, at least to do the primary bevel mm -hmm. because. I found if you start with the 1200 on your secondary bevel, it just your secondary bevel gets big fast and yeah. then you're regrinding. Hmm. So, yeah. uh, but you know, now I just, now I do just knock it up and just suck it up and do the secondary bevel. 
Yeah, I may go up to that 400 grit because it did <clears> – <throat> the secondary bevel on the stones did take a little bit of a, a while to get a, a polish started for me. So I don't know. Don't we, be led astray, Tom. Don't, don't be led astray. Don't be no Just 400 on, grit on. on a primary bevel. <laughs> <laughs> um but this is the technique that uh, Denim Pachowski from Lee Nielsen wrote about in the magazine, what, five years ago now yeah. or something? Yeah. Yeah. I think they either go 8100 or 100120. And I asked him why he did two. They used three grits. I thought in that article, two. there's three grits. Okay. I don't remember. I don't know. And also, another thing that they recommend and I think works pretty well is to be consistently switching back and forth between the grits. And I believe, if I remember correctly, the reasoning behind that is is that if you do that, then you're not going to get as deep as right. scratches. Yeah. And so you you uh, you don't have to – it won't take you – if you just do it on the 150 and then move up, you're going to have really deep scratches. They're going to take a long time to remove. Yes. That's kind of what I was Getting, about to say. Yeah. But I was going to get it wrong, so I'm glad you interrupted me because I, now I can just say that's what I was going to say, but it was no. not as good. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, I mean, it, it's what's really cool is those those granite plates are relatively inexpensive. I think I bought mine at Woodcraft for like $27 or something. Um, yeah, they're, they're like 9 by 18, yep. 2 inches thick, and that's yep. all you really need. Just yeah. don't have it air mailed. <laughs> no, you have to go to Woodcraft and, yeah. Because yeah. you can actually, you know, like you can buy a bigger one, like three inches thick, and, and I was going to get one, and you can, but you mail order it, and the, the shipping is more than the cost of the thing mm-hmm. itself. Yeah. So, Ugh. Yeah. Ugh. anyway, it's fast and easy, and uh, thanks, Obama. I enjoyed it. Oh God, I hope we don't have to open <laughs> another box. <laughs> yeah, I think we do. We it's do. back to to questions. Try the really small box because a a big question can't fit in into that a thing. small box. Yeah. All right, so this is a little <laughs> this is a sugar box. Okay, gosh, it has paint on the inside. It's got a sweet question. It is. Oh, I think this is the first time any item has ever been inside any of these boxes. That's not true. All right, this is upside down. It's like fortune cookies we're reading. Yeah, uh, this says, hi, guys. I'm making some blocks for my toddler out of red oak from a big box store. I had to glue up boards to get the thickness I want. With my number five bench plane, I'm getting glass smooth surfaces on the faces, but tear out on some parts of the edges due to some grain direction mismatch. I guess I can either use a card scraper, which I don't have, to eliminate tear out or sand the problem areas down. So the questions here, two questions. Should I sand the plane surfaces before applying a shellac finish? Uh, Will I notice any difference in applying the shellac between the plane surfaces versus areas that I've sanded to fix tear out? And the question is from Woody and HG, which is, is that Mercury? HG is Mercury, Mercury, right? Mercury, I believe, right? And help? Help? (laughs) Woody Mercury, maybe. Woody HG from well, we're not going to say where he's from. Huh. Well, I would say this. This is good. You, this is a really great question because with every project, I'm always looking for an excuse to buy a new tool. So the tool you need to buy, and this is a fantastic tool. Um, if you don't have one, you need to have it. It's fairly inexpensive for a stationary power tool. <laughs> Go to Home Depot. <laughs> And get their combination random orbit sander with the belt attachment. And just sand all those things with a belt Ran- sander. 
It's a belt no, sander. No, spindle, spindle sander. sander. Yeah. Oh, the, rigid, the rigid? Yeah, and just sand those things, all four faces, and just knock <clears> the corners <throat> and the edges off too. Boom, 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 everything done. And then either finish them or don't finish them. Shellac's fine because it's, it's you know non-toxic and all that good kind of stuff. They're just going to get chewed on and thrown around. And, and licked, yeah. And then the cat's going to find one. Then a the dog's going to find the other one, and they all get put in a pile. So I wouldn't worry about hand playing and scraper surfaces. And the reason why you are getting tear out on that glued up surface, you sort of hit uh, half of it, which is you have a glue joint, which means the grain could be going different directions on either side of that joint. The second thing, you're buying red oak from a box store. You're buying plain sawn oak, which means those edges are quarter sawn. And quarter sawn is notorious for wanting to tear out quarters on oak oak quarters on oak yeah. quarters on anything try quarters on cherry yeah that's true that's yeah. horrible so yeah. um i just finished saying that <laughs> indirectly <laughs> we didn't say anything about tear out you said you didn't like quarters on cherry but <laughs> anyway um so yeah i would just sand them all you know it's a utilitarian thing it's an excuse to buy a really really cool <clears throat> oscillating spindle sander um, that you should have anyway. But and if you already have it, do use not that. use the oscillating spindle sander. Use no, the, the belt, belt sander right. attach yeah. attachment. But that tool yes. is like cheaper than the number five probably was. Yeah, it's two, if it's, yeah. Like, if it's, it's high two hundred number five. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was under two hundred bucks. bucks. Yeah. yeah, that's like an awesome. It always wins best value and best overall. Ben would only get it if, if, if it were cordless and ran off batteries. Is that true, Ben? <laughs> ben likes all the stationary machinery. He's not going to get a, a three horse te- horsepower table saw until they're battery operated. Should we do another question? Yeah, Mike, you want to pick one? <sighs> yeah, this better not be a long one, Ben. <laughs> I'm just going to make up a question. Summarize. <laughs> oh, it's not too bad. Okay. Oh, it's for me. It's from you? Perfect. It's, it's for me, from yeah. me. It's like Christmas. Uh, this is it is from, like Christmas. <laughs> this is from Avi. Avi says, I have a question about leaving ducktails proud on the joining surface. Hmm. I've noticed in Mike Pekovich's work, for example, that dovetails often protrude and have a really elegant, soft roundover. I'm wondering how that look is achieved. Is it sanded only after the joint is together? Um, that hurts just a little bit, Avi, because I try to use a block plane and keep really crisp chamfers on my through dovetails. Um, however, if I were going to round them, I would still chamfer primarily with uh, with a block plane and then just sort of round that over, maybe starting, maybe probably 320 grit is enough to sort of get a, a round over there. Um, the cool thing about that is that um, because the surfaces are already done, you can pre-finish all those surfaces and do away with the headache of through joinery, which is if you get squeeze out on the end grain or between the joints, it's horrible. But just do a little pre-finish with shellac and and try not to get glue on the end grain. But if you do, it should pop off and it won't discolor anything. Here's I, how I would do it. Ben, you redeemed yourself with this question. Good job. Go to Home Depot. Yes. Get yourself that a belt sander. Belt sander. <laughs> and then sand those things down until they're flush. Who needs a hand plane? <laughs> Yeah, I don't know why I was thinking of this, but as Mike was reading the question, I was I, I thought he had covered this in an article, and I was reminded or remembering uh, years ago we had a contributing editor um, who the, these guys are supposed to answer reader questions as they come in, and this guy's constant reply to folks was "Take my class." <laughs> <laughs> but we did we did cover that technique. Tim yeah. Rousseau wrote an article about it a few years ago. <laughs> <laughs> Our work is done here. 
Sorry, Mike. Yeah. I'm busting your chops. Uh, all right. Another question, or do we know we're segment let's, time? Let's do a segment. All let's right. get out of these boxes for a second. Um, <laughs> it's time to confess our smooth moves. What would you do with a brain if you had one? All right. I, I have a you whopper. Should, all right, then you go first. I've got a whopper. Let's this start with is, a whopper. This, this, one is, this one is legendary. Yeah, let's have him go last, and then we'll, you know people forget about what we did that's true you always <laughs> go first with the smooth move no one remembers yeah well i i glue up stress me out and i have this rule you know about woodworking in general that i that i tend not to try to do things when i'm tired and with my limited time in the shop sometimes that rule is really hard to adhere to because if i have like 15 minutes left of, of time to be in the shop i'll try to get something done in that time so i had some Wonderful shop time yesterday, and actually had got like three hours in where I got. I'm building this cabinet on stand, and I had all the case pieces planed and sanded and edged, and everything was was working fine. I did a dry run, and I thought, well, I'll just wait till tomorrow. I'll come back and do it tomorrow night. And I thought, no, oh, man, I'm so close. I've been sitting on these parts for weeks and trying to get them together. And so I went for it. <laughs> and, um, now, like I said, I, I'm using biscuit joinery for the, to attach the top and the bottom to the, um, the sides and the partition. Yep. And uh, on the inside, I've got grooves routed for um, a drawer, a shelf that would go above a drawer. And then on the inside, on the other side, there's going to be a door with a shelf in that compartment. So I've got those grooves routed. I've got everything lined up. I do the dry run and the clamps work. Everything is, is, is going really nicely. So I take it apart. And as soon as I put glue in, you know, I'm, I'm getting stressed because, you know, sure. I've got biscuits and they swell pretty quickly and I'm, I'm getting it all together and I'm going boom, boom, boom. And I get the whole thing together and I had a little per, some persuasion problems and I'm checking the case for square after I get all these clamps on. And it suddenly occurs to me that, oh my gosh, I put the partition in in the wrong direction. I put it in upside down. Ooh, so your shelf notches so weren't quite where they wanted to be. We're not the same length, nor within in the same location. And I was like, uh, and I, I, you know, I'm probably not supposed to use the language that I created, but um, ripped off all the clamps. You know, I think my kids were running away from me at that time, and I'm trying to get that thing apart. And I can't get it, get it apart. And then it occurred to me, and this is sort of a could be a technique of all time. And I remembered, you know, my parallel jaw clamps. I can take the head off and make a reverse, and oh, so man. that's what I did. I, I made it into a spreader. And that allowed me to pry the top and the bottom apart off the sides. And then I had to get the biscuits out. And it was just a big mess. Wow. I think that that takes the MacGyver award. Oh, my God. It was just – and then I – you know, the other thing is – Did it break the biscuits? No, the biscuits – I was surprised that it – that nothing – broke really and i was surprised that i was able to get the biscuits out but there were i had like seven or eight that i couldn't get out with my hand or with pliers and so i remembered my um eighth inch chisel huh. and an eighth inch is perfect to get into that slot so right. i put it in bevel down and wedged up the biscuits and they popped out wow but now I have – I'm basically starting from scratch though because I've got to resurface and get all the – you know, any glue that was left over and 
it was quite embarrassing. I just was like, you know, I broke my rule and look what happened. Yeah. That's a I, I predict that we will get at least 3,472 emails extolling the virtues of hide glue, hide glue. and its reversibility. Well, with hide glue, you could reverse that and it sticks to itself. So it's no problem gluing <laughs> it back up. Yeah. Which and, is true. I don't know why I'm using bad voice because it's really no, smart. It's, it's good advice. And you can rest the bottle in the curve of your tricorn hat. Yeah, the whole time I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, oh, my God, how, and you know, like this bonehead thing. I went from having a great day and, you know, everything was working out smooth and I just, just whatever, just craziness where you just kind of lose your mind and. Well, Fortunately, you, I saw it and I saved you it. Saw so, um, it could have um, been worse. It could have been worse. Yeah. I'd have firewood because I was thinking there's no way I would have been able to, first of all, fit my router inside the case to right. reroute the grooves and you brutal. know patching them. I would have I would have burned it. You know, yeah. would have been awful. So I was fortunate that I got it and and I used uh, just yellow glue, type on yellow glue, and it, I was surprised that the case actually came apart because, like I said, I. I was muscling that thing, trying to get it apart with my arms, and I realized, oh, wait a minute, I've got these parallel jaw clamps sitting right here. So ripped the head off one, turned it around, and it came apart like that. Cool. It, was, it was pretty pretty amazing. But well, in the future, if you were stuck with that and you couldn't fit a router in there and you didn't want to beat it apart and break it, one option is to install like a mitered lining to the whole case, and then oh, you could yeah. route and stop. In fact, Matt, I think you've done that, haven't you? I know Tim Russo has yeah, done I've that. Yeah, I've done that. You've done years. that. Right. Yes. Yeah, okay. Tim Russo That's wrote an idea. article about it. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good idea. Or I could have made it a tool cabinet or a garbage can. No, no. <laughs> That's good. Well, it sounds like... Uh, I recovered, and, and now I'm, I'm, I'm going back to it. Awesome. It's just... <sighs> now, I, what I, first of all, let's just clarify something that was just said. Now, you said, Matt, you've done that before. I have used that technique no, before, not, but, but not, not because... This. No, no, no. I did not imply that. No. In fact, you just you posted a really nice, beautiful wall cabinet that was oak on the outside, and it was basswood yeah, lined basswood, basswood liner. for nice effect. And I've done the same thing when I do boxes with lots of drawers. Sometimes the whole thing is a mitered liner. It's sort of like in a... Um, what do you call those big spice boxes? Mm-hmm. Um, exactly. Yeah. Where they often have mitered liners for all the drawers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It means you do all that after the whole thing is glued up. Yep. Yeah. Cool. Spice boxes. Spice boxes. <sighs> all right. Well, uh, Mike, Mike better I, go next. All right. <laughs> Remember that awesome technique I was talking about earlier with the spacers <laughs> and the double spacers for my double tenants? Um, and those were, in fact, for a project I'm working on that um, I'm writing an article on. It is a Krenov style case on stand. So. Um, you know, I want things to be you know, as as perfect as possible. And this technique got me tenons that were as perfect as I could get them with a really smart technique that I'm happy to share. So I do all this. And so you're left with all the cheat cuts, but you have to remove the waste between the tenons. Well, these tenons were offset to one edge of the board. So on one edge, there was just like a 16th inch wide shoulder. So the tenon was exposed. On the opposite end, there was a big three-quarter inch piece of waste I had to cut off. So I'm going to the bandsaw, cutting off the pieces of waste, and then I cut off a piece of waste. And I said, that did not look three-quarters of an inch wide. It looks like five-sixteenths wide. So I had just like knocked off one of my pristine double tenons at the Mm. bandsaw. Mm -hmm. So I saved it, and I'm going to chamfer it when I chamfer my other ones. I'm going to glue it up. I'm going to pound that sucker home from the outside, and no one's going to know. 
Well, what it won't there be a gap? I mean, it won't be it won't take up the full mortise, <clears throat> right? Because it'll you you have a kerf in there because you cut it off. So no, you, I, I cut it off at the baseline. The base. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. No, it's perfect. Okay. It's going to look like a uh, tenon from the outside. It's just not connected to anything from the inside. But there's, it's a double tenon, so they got one tenon yeah. in the front, two mm-hmm. in the back. It's funny. Is that going to be in the illustration in the article? I think Tim Russo wrote whoops. an article on that. So. <laughs> it's going to be a big whoops. No, <laughs> no, that will not appear in the article. No. No. I'm know. pretty sure as I'm laying that out, I won't have room for that. Yeah, that photo is just not going to make <laughs> yeah. it in. It's really funny, though. I mean, not funny, but how quickly things go awry. Yeah, know? it's like pop. Because oh. I, I know I've I've been there have been times where I've been making a cut, and I'm thinking, oh wait, this isn't right, and I get my body still moving forward through the cut. And it's like, oh no, that wasn't right. That was yeah. really stupid. I had time to break and I didn't. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I will go with a similar smooth move. I actually could not remember. I couldn't think of anything that I've messed up recently. So he's got one from Tim Rousseau. Oh yeah, this is one I saw Tim Rousseau do. Um, <laughs> now, uh, this is a similar thing, and I've done this many times, which is why I'll use it. Um, so when I'm when I do drawers at the back, uh, I do um, at the top of the side is a half pin. Yes, but at the bottom, there's no pin until you get above the groove for the bottom and then i cut my bottom the back in line with that so you can slide the back in right yes this is a, a, a one of the traditional ways of making a drawer yes so right so in other words right above the groove for the bottom is a is a is a pin yes uh, a, a pin socket on the side on the mm-hmm. tailboard well, so that means you have to like cut out that half socket for the pin at the top. Yes. But you don't do it at the bottom. This is correct. I cannot tell you how many times I have gone ahead and cut it out at the bottom, made that cut at the bottom, and then realized, oh, crap, I shouldn't be doing this. And there's a little kerf cut into the oh. side, and then it just gets, you know, so I just, you know, jam a piece of wood down in there and oh. glue it up and plane it flash and everything. No, I'm guilty of cutting that whole thing off, and you end up with little notches on the bottom back corner yeah. of your drawers. So now whenever I see that, I'm looking oh. at Ben, I say, ooh, I know what happened there. <laughs> Did you do that recently, Ben? Yeah. Oh, ben? poor Ben. <laughs> I had no idea. Something everyone yeah. does that. It's okay. You'll never do it again. <laughs> yeah, you will. <laughs> yeah, you over will. and over again. I got two drawers that way. Yeah. You did. Yeah. yeah, that's embarrassing. Well, yeah. I think we have time for one more question. Oh, if we no. dare to go back to this well. Oh, well, which I'm going to open this box. This this is one of my favorite ones right here. It has little angled sides on it. And Didn't you just open that one? Just as an explainer for quarter sun or riffs on cherry. Yeah, I just picked it up as a... Uh, and it's got a really it's fabric inside. Nice fabric on the inside. Oh, and, and those poles. Gol- nice golf tees? Poles, oh, I thought they were golf Yeah, tees. I don't know what those are doing in there. Uh, and some pulls that I turned. All right, here we go. Question. Oh, man. That's a bum. All right. This is from the same guy. And it's long again. It's like Stairway to Heaven. No, this is from Woody, though. Uh, so this is another. Uh, yeah, he pronounces it Woody Mercury. Oh. Yeah. Uh, I wonder if you're related to Freddie. He says, hi, guys. I have a couple of projects under my belt and built these with an understanding of movement and some techniques to accommodate them. 
accommodate wood movement. But I seem to have underestimated the humidity swings throughout the year resulting in unsightly gaps or parts that have taken up the room I've allowed and left me wondering if, they're, if they'll fail. In other words, they expanded too much. Mm-hmm. I've started to monitor the relative humidity in my basement shop but have no sense for what humidity changes to expect in the rest of my house throughout the year. So my questions are as follows. He likes to ask two questions. Uh, I think he's a scientist because this is all very orderly and it's numbered and everything. Do you guys use any wood movement calculators or just rules of thumb when anticipating amount of movement? Do you guys uh, – question the second. Do you guys monitor or even control your shop humidity? either at fine woodworking or in your own shops. So two questions there. How do we account for wood movement, and do we monitor the relative humidity in well, our shops? I, I can answer the, the, the fine woodworking shop question. No, we don't. <laughs> but we keep it at like 90 degrees and uh, pretty dry. Well, sometimes. actually, the shop down the shop down there has pretty big swings in the winter. It it's true. really dry. It's uninsulated. Oh, it's the heater's dry. blasting. Yeah. yeah. It will literally suck the moisture out of your skin. Yeah. Yes. I remember you spend I, too I, much time in there. I yeah. made a little um, uh, table, like a dining table. Not a dining table, but like a breakfast table. And I glued it up. Went home, you know. I I glued that plane that went home one night before attaching it to the base. Came back the next day and it had cupped on me just overnight. Yeah, it was crazy. So anyway, um, I I do not keep. I cannot control humidity in my shop. It, it swings from super dry in the winter to you know jungle swamp in the summer. Yeah, mine's pretty temperate. I think in that realm. I have a dehumidifier which works sometimes, but. I don't know. It seems pretty, you know, it, it does feel more um, humid, certainly in the summer, but um, I don't know. I just factor that in. If I build something in the summer, I tend to leave a smaller gap. And if I build it in the winter, I tend to leave a bigger gap. Yeah, I think I think Woody's definitely onto something. It is a two-part question. One is you got to kind of know your shop, mm-hmm. where you're at in relation to other places your furniture mm-hmm. is going to live. And number two, seasonally, where you're at. You're building in February where with the heat on or in August where things are about as humid as you're going to get. Um, if you're building in a, in, a sh- in a humid shop, basement shop, um, in a way, that's kind of like building in August all the time and that if you're building in an environment which is more humid than where the piece of furniture is going to live, then just build everything really tight because it's all going to shrink once you get out of that, <laughs> that basement. And also, you know, get yourself a little, you know, what is it, hygrometer for mm-hmm. your house and just kind of see what the difference is. I sort of control my uh, climate just sort of as a matter of course, because in the summertime, I run an air conditioner, which is pulling moisture out of the air. And in the wintertime, when I am heating, I usually keep, you know, an old metal, you know, teapot on top of my heater just to put some moisture back into the air. But always with the understanding that I'm going to build really loose in the wintertime when it's dry. Yes, and really tight uh, when in it's really summer. humid. I don't yeah. have to worry about it too right. much. Um, yeah, it's a good rule of thumb. That's kind of what I follow. It, it's harder in the winter time to build loose because the gaps are bigger than I want them to be. It's not unreasonable if I'm doing, say, a seven-drawer dresser in February and then in August, you got to touch up a couple drawers. Yeah. But chances are oh, yeah. once you hit it once, 
in August, they're good. So when I, I make furniture for people, number one, I try to build in large enough gaps where it's not going to stick, but I really tell them, look, if it sticks, call me because we can fix it. And I will even call them in the summertime and say, is everything works? Everything. And they first they say, oh, everything's great. It's really beautiful. Do all the drawers open really easily? Well, one of them's fine. I'll be right over with my little block plane mm-hmm. and take care of everything. So yeah, you do what you can and then, you know, kind of fix things as needed when things get humid and that should be the last time you have to touch it. I think um, Garrett, I think it was Garrett who used to keep a, a couple boards on his wall and he kind of monitored. I was just about was to it? say this. Ugh. Oh, sorry. Do you want to continue? Well, I was going <laughs> to say instead it's, of it's a, a low tech way, yeah, hygrometer or whatever it is it's called. Uh, like, uh, so I use riffs on cherry. So I keep a piece of riffs on cherry in the house and measure it at different times, the width of it at different times of the year and the thickness at different, you know, and that gives me an indication of how much things could change between my house and my shop. You don't do that. I know. I said I could. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I don't do that. I don't really care. I just build stuff, you know. So what Garrett has is long off cuts, like, on, like from the end of a table. So it's all end grain. Yeah. Because if you have like a long strip of wood that's long grain and measure it length to length, it isn't going to move no, very much. So much. he's basically multiplying the the effective wood movement because he has a big like 30-inch or 20-inch long piece of end grain cutoff, which is going to move. And he actually measures that and writes yeah. down the date. And mm-hmm. yeah, It's, I it's a lot more work than that. Uh, I wonder how often Garrett actually measures that. Every morning. <laughs> Um, <laughs> he's got his routines. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't, I just kind of, you know, you build a little gappy in the winter and then a little snug in the summer. Yep. And if you're building it for yourself, I mean, if it gets a little snug in the summer, you just check it. And when it starts to get too tight to pull out the drawer, you go back and you hit it. I and mean, if it's a panel, you, you can accommodate for expansion uh, fairly easily when you make the frame and panel. Yeah. yeah. You know, you don't have to. It's really drawers that we're talking about. Maybe visible gaps. Indoors. Yeah. Yeah. I did do a little arts and crafts sort of small cabinet with a single drawer and built it in the wintertime. And I don't know, July or August, it just locked up tight. It was not moving. So it was just like, don't worry about it. Had to wait till the wintertime. Got it back open and planed it then. Yeah. Hard to tell a client that. Yeah, just don't open that for six months and we'll deal with that. Yeah. It's like a hidden compartment. I have a, a a box right now that someone has bought, and uh, I need to send it to them. But I kind of had to wait uh, because I made it uh, in the late winter, early spring, and uh, summer rolled around, and the drawers would not open. And I was just like, well, you know, fortunately they didn't need it right away. And I was like, well, I was going to wait. <laughs> and then I just got them out this weekend. So uh, in one of these nights this week, I'm going to be in there touching them up and, yeah, getting them ready to go. Don't worry. Ben's going to edit that section out. I'm not worried. All right. I just raised the price. More work. <laughs> <laughs> Now it's time to get an earful from my listeners and viewers. Um, Tony writes, thank you so much for all your great podcasts. I have a question for Matt. Oh, Matt's going to love this one. You recently spoke of your new lovely Japanese hammer you bought with a sharpening stone. Being a Japanese tool, does it hit on the pull stroke? And does that hurt when it does? 
I don't know. That makes me groan. Yeah. <laughs> no. This one. This one is. Well, I'm sorry. What? Mike? Oh, I was just gonna say. Whenever anyone complains about the humor on the show, it's like, uh, you know, this is actually pretty funny. And if you don't think so, then find something else. But then when you actually hear someone else like throw a woodworking joke in there, and you realize how bad and unfunny it is, you realize, we're oh my god, funny. we're not. Yeah, we're not. not Car- we're not Caroline's so, yet. Yeah. No, that's so. all right. We're on thing. Text pilot writes great stuff, but needs audio work. I think that's oh, for you, Ben. ben. Got to get on that audio work. All your boys back in Nashville <laughs> be very disappointed. <laughs> They're going to come back and take your Grammy away. Um, Derby Shaw <laughs> chimes in. Sorry, but you're not as funny as you think you are. Touche. While informative, the constant laughing at their own lame jokes is incredibly tiresome. It is truly sophomoric and is reminiscent of teenage boys with their first experience on a tape recorder. Dial it back a few notches, okay? I've got bad news for you. This dial goes to 11, (laughs) and we've only gotten to five. (laughs) (laughs) Finally, Matt Dub One writes, first off, Mike Pekovich is the Gandalf of woodworking. Nice. Just stop right there. All right. He reminds me of my dad, and that's a good thing. Matt Kenny is a true snarky and hilarious woodworking inspiration. Reminds me of most of my friends. Tom reminds me of a Marine sniper turned woodworker for some reason. He reminds us of that, too. (laughs) (laughs) Well done, gentlemen. So, well, that, um, I don't know, i got to figure that one out. Anyway, that's uh, that's all for this episode of Shop Talk Live. Tune in again in two weeks on September 30th for our next episode. Remember to send your questions and comments to shoptalk at taunton.com. And please spread the word about Shop Talk Live to your woodworking friends and neighbors. You can catch the podcast via iTunes, stream it on the web at shoptalklive.com, or catch us on iHeartRadio. Also, don't forget to visit finewoodworking.com to keep up with the tool giveaway for our 40th anniversary. The current prize is a white side seven-piece router bit set. To win, you must enter by September 19th. To enter, go to findwoodworking.com slash 40 sweeps. That's the number 40 again. It's findwoodworking.com slash 40 sweeps. Finally, you can keep up with Fine Woodworking on Instagram and on Facebook and look for all of us on Instagram as well. Thanks for listening and have fun in the shop. By the way, those white side bits are probably going to be slightly used before you get them. Shh. If you win them. Yeah, Tim Rousseau used them in an article. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Tim. We better call Tim. <laughs> Heads up, dude. <laughs>